Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And then the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to him, and they came to Bethesda, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And and on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Thank you, Nate. I've noticed something. Um, I'm, I'm a people watcher. When you're an introvert, uh, you're not thinking about what am I going to say. You're just thinking, who's around here? What do they like? And I'm, I'm, I'm a wa- I watch, right? And I watch our culture, and I study, I study what's happening around. When I'm, when I'm listening to the news, I'm thinking, what's going going on in the minds of people? I'm, I just watch, and I've noticed something. In American Christianity, often Christians are that in name only. It's a religion of convenience and personal advancement. What's in it for me? Which is really a paganism concept. What's in it for me? It's a fair-weather Christianity that's very common. And and as long as it's popular and well thought of, and as as long as as it's advantageous to me, I'll, I'll do this Christian thing. If it feels good, keep at it, right? 
But no wonder so many lose interest because that's not the way true Christianity is. It's not an easy thing. It's not, it's not a popular event. It's not what's in it for me. And so interest wanes when there's not that self-serving interest at the front. And it's God's mercies that he takes that away from us quite often. Jesus dealt with a, a very similar concern in his ministry, particularly in preparing his followers, his 12 disciples, for what they were going to face as they faced the rest of life after he went on to glory. All of this is preparation for their church ministry. Guess where we are now in a church ministry? What will it take for us, along with the disciples, to join in with the disciples, what will it take for us to see Jesus for who he really is, our Messiah, and then that answering the why to what is Christianity? What will it take? Here in Mark chapter 8, I, I've, I've noticed several points, uh, a, a progression uh, one leading to another, leading to another. These are not random events. I think there's a, a progression to this in teaching Jesus' followers, his disciples. And there are four interactions here, and Jesus is developing his disciples to a life of commitment to him, to truly be followers of Christ. Out on our church sign, we say we're following Christ. Jesus, here a little bit later on in the chapter, is going to say, you, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. We'll get to that. But there's something that leads up to this in these four interactions, and it leads us to answer this question, how do you really see Jesus? Is it a matter of convenience? Or is it a matter that he's the Messiah and his name is lifted up? How do you see Jesus? Is it a matter of just what we do, or is it a conviction of your soul? Oh, God, may you use your word to take it beyond just ideas that we think about and piercing to our souls with this conviction that we would make a de declaration that you are the Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first interaction Jesus has with his followers, drawing them to this understanding of who he is, is first to call out uh, the contaminating spread of unbelief. Unbelief is without belief, and belief is an important concept in our scriptures. It's all over the New Testament. It's all over the Gospels. To believe is, is to, well, what is believing? <laughs> it's... Just, I, I like that, or I want that, or is it more than that? And to realize when you believe something that there's no one else I can depend on, there's no one else I can lean on, trust in the Lord. Lean not to your own understanding. You're leaning on the Lord completely. You're putting your complete dependence on Christ alone. That's what it means to believe, to lean on Him alone, to put all your resources, all your hopes, all your future, everything on what he says and what he's done and what he promises. But there's unbelief going on, which is just the opposite of that, which says, no, I really don't need that. 
I want what I'm going to trust in myself, or I'm going to entrust in what I have, have around me, my resources, the American dream. Here, Jesus clumps together two opposites. He refers to the Pharisees, and he also refers to Herod. And he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So he's talking to his followers, and he's saying, watch out for this contaminating spread of unbelief. Two opposites, Herod and the Pharisees. How, what's the connection? Normally, these two political parties were arch enemies, not even on speaking terms in their culture, <laughs> almost like Democrats and Republicans today in America. The Herodians were far different than the Pharisees. The Herodians were immoral, pagan, Roman following. Uh, you understand Herod and why John the Baptist was, you know, and had his head cut off. And, and then the Pharisees were, were law-keeping, and they were, they were following the letter of the law. And the total opposites. What's the connection here? Well, for both, there was a sense of security that came with power, very much so still in effect in our world. A security sensing, if I have enough power, if I can dominate, if I control, control others around me, then I, I'm good. These groups, these political powerhouses were opposites, yet they came together against Jesus. And we'll see that a little bit later on at the, at, at the cross. They were refusing to believe. That's what they had in common because they liked believing in themselves. Believe in yourself. Believe in your own power. Don't believe in God. And the Pharisees wanted to see a sign, and if you'll recall, so did Herod. He had been hoping to see a sign for a long time, right? In, in Luke chapter 23, we read about that. Oh, he was excited. He might be able to see a sign. Notice it says they were seeking a sign from heaven. Verse 11. They were seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. The typical word that Mark uses for miracles in this gospel, dunamos, isn't the one that's used here. The word used here is a word that's entirely different. Semeon. Semeon, excuse me. And, and it's different in this, that one is speaking of something that's very powerful. The other one is think, speaking of something that is authentication. All right, this is the real deal. This sign says this is for real. And he uses that word here on purpose. A little background here is a little very helpful. Back in Deuteronomy, Matt, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Deuteronomy, no, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, part of the first five books of the Bible. In Deuteronomy 13 and also in Deuteronomy 18, we read, if one comes and performs a miracle, a sign like this, something of authentication, but draws away from the word of the truth or the law, the Torah of God, he was a false prophet. So this was actually a trick request, a trap. 
And they were putting Jesus on the spot. Hey, if we can get him to do some sort of miracle and then demonstrate that he's going against the law that we've created, we can label him as a false prophet. Notice verse 12. Jesus sighed deeply. Can you picture that? It's like, <sighs> ever done that? People are always accusing me of sighing, and I just, it just comes out just, <sighs> well, I'm just being like Jesus, okay? All right. <laughs> no, he had good reason for it. My reasons for sighing are not always a good reason, all right? But Jesus had good reason here. Have you ever had somebody that was just persistently against you and they just wouldn't accept what you were saying or trying to do, and so all you can do is just, <sighs> he's just exasperated. And it's like he's done with this. He can't do anymore. Again, we have to face this same trick. And in verse 15, he says that the, those of Herod and the Pharisees were like leaven. Now take a, com a minute to consider how leaven works. Uh, it's really a, a, a kind of phenomenal thing if you think about it. It's, it's, a, it's cool science at work right in front of us. Anybody that's baking gets to see this. You take a little baking soda and salt and water or some yeast and you put some flour in with it and all of a sudden you have this acid-base compound happening and there's this chemical reaction and all of a sudden it just keeps expanding and it just takes over and you, you smash it down and it comes back up again and you have a loaf of bread and, and more. But there's something happening here that just takes over. That's the point here. Leaven is a good thing for us in being able to enjoy good food, right? But in Scripture, normally, Jesus is using it as something that everybody understands. They're doing this every day with their bread, but they, and they see how that works. Now he's using it as a negative, realizing there's something, a danger, a danger developing here that's just taking over. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. It spreads. It's taking over. I think there's a call here to watch out for the corruptive influence or the spreading impact or the dominating effect of unbelief. Starts with a little bit, a little leaven, leavens a whole lump. It can become a very dominating thing in your life and in our culture. And the leaven of unbelief, oh no, I, God, Jesus, no, come on. There's doubt Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they're starting to reason, well, maybe it is it because we asked this question about where was our bread? And, and in verse 17, no, he says, because you have hardened your hearts. You're hardening your hearts. That's the danger of unbelief. You shut out God's word from penetrating your heart. The Holy Spirit using the Scriptures to minister to what God has said to you through Jesus Christ. You're shutting that out through unbelief. That's a very dangerous place to be. So he's calling that out. He's helping them to be alert to the, what's happening around them is a very dangerous influence. Be alert to that, Christian. 
the alert to the danger, the leaven of unbelief. Number two, deal with your doubts. You're going to have doubts. Because, because you're a thinking person, because the devil is a trickster from the very beginning, from the very beginning, Satan said, hath God said. He's doubting what God said. It's going to keep on happening that way. You're going to have to face these. And what I'm saying is to doubt your doubts. Deal with them. And doubt your doubts is not original with me. It's a very important statement. Doubt your doubts. Don't doubt the truth. That's, that's the fad nowadays. Just doubt the Bible all you can and just assume that it's wrong. No, doubt your doubts. And not just doubt your doubts, but doubt your doubts by recalling truth. And that's what Jesus urges them to do here. Doubt your doubts by recalling what you know God has done and said. Doubt your doubts by recalling the truth. Here in verse 17 and 18, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? We've addressed that. Having your eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? And then in verses 19 through 21, as you see on the screen, he reminds them of what he's done already. Don't you just, just a few days ago, don't you remember the feeding of the 5,000? How much was left over? Twelve baskets. Oh, also another event, the first with the Jewish culture, the second with the Gentile culture, 4,000 were fed. How many baskets were left over? Answer, seven. And then you do, do you not yet understand? I think there are two important questions here. Do you not remember, or I'll say it in the positive, do you remember? There are some things that God has said to you. There are some things that God has done for you. Is that on your mind? Are you recalling this? You doubt your doubts by recalling the truth. As you're facing doubts, and they will come, get back to the book, open the Bible, and say, okay, God, show me from the truth again what you've done, what you've said, and put my doubts in perspective by the fact that I know, thus saith the Lord, thy word is truth. Get back to the truth. Do you remember? And then also, have you dug enough so that you understand? Sometimes you have to dig a little bit deeper. Search it out. Search the scriptures to see whether these things are so. And they are. Do you understand? Another way we could say that, have the lights come on. Boom. Oh, I see it now. And that leads us to the third encounter. Open your eyes to reality, what's really there. I'm amazed at how often people love to live in a fantasy world. Uh, fantasy, it's, it's, it's a whole genre of, of literature and entertainment, and there's so much fun with it. And, and, you know, I've just never been drawn to fantasy. Maybe you are, maybe, you know, Star Trek or... You know, that's old age. What, what's, something more, more relevant today. But uh, you, you, Yeah, you're laughing at it because he has no clue, does he? Okay. I'm just not into fantasy. But what amazes me is how in our world, what, you know, even we expect children to have imaginations and fantasy. And keep your imagination. You've got to keep that going. But you've got to live in reality. And I'm amazed at how often adults 
are living in a fantasy world. Things that are made up aren't based on reality. Let's open our eyes to see what's really here. Um, by the way, uh, a couple of weeks ago, was it last week, I, I, sh- I showed you a chart as we were working through this material of, of how this was leading up to a very important point as Jesus was interacting with the culture around him, the Gentile culture as he went up to Tyre and Sidon and, and Decapolis and now back around to Bethsaida. And uh, we'll get to Caesarea Philippi here in just a moment as well. But we were looking at who Jesus is. He's God. This is the point that we're addressing, and we're going to get to that where the lights come on and realize this Messiah, this one, this Jesus that's with them, it's God in the flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is God in the flesh, and He's right there with them. Who is Jesus? He is God, the miracle-working God. All of these miracles were authentications of the fact of who He really was. And with each one of them, he shows that through his deliverance, through how he enables, how he provides for them. And also now in Mark chapter 8, verse 22, in addressing this blind man, how he opens the eyes to reality. Verse 22, they had this blind man brought to him. And this man comes and he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And then... He addresses it in in two phases or two steps. Normally, it's just one encounter and it's done. But this one was very unique. Mark addresses this. He's the only one who brings this miracle to to the Scriptures. It's interesting. In fact, I really enjoyed this miracle. Um, You'll see why here in just a minute. Well, first, in in that culture, it was something that was understood. And it it was something that Jesus did. He spits, then he sticks his hands in the guy's eyes, then he rubs that saliva around in those diseased eyes. We don't really know why this man was blind, but we know that he was, and he could not see anything, and there could be many reasons for that. But then Jesus says, what do you see? And I love this. The man says, um... I see people walking, but they look like trees. Oh, what's going on there with that? Why the halfway healing, so to speak? That's the way, the way I've, I've termed it there. It wasn't all the way done, but it was kind of there. Why taking it to this point? And then he says, I see trees walking. Wouldn't that be quite the sight? But that's not reality, is it? Now, this could be a form of Jesus showing his sense of humor. By the way, I would encourage you to study this concept out. And there, if you understand Jewish history, that it's built more on irony and a little bit of sarcasm and some wordplay, you'll understand that there are a whole lot of places in the New Testament where Jesus is going, <laughs> did you get the joke? It's very unique that way. But here, this man sees something. I see I see. People walking around like trees, and I could just see it go, oops, let me fix that for you. <laughs> could have been humor. might not be, but that's just kind of my take on it. But I know there's a point to be made. Remember, the whole point of this miracle, as we've addressed, is that there to be illumination. 
for us to see reality. Not just this blind man. He had to see things clearly. I think that's the key to the whole miracle that's addressed here. He saw it clearly. God wants you to see him clearly, to see the reality of who he is and what he's done and who Jesus is and how all of life revolves around that revelation. I think what's happening here is those that were there recalling the other things that Jesus had done, the other miracles, and then right here this blind man sees. And Jesus touches him a second time, and he sees clearly. What comes to mind is what these people understood about their Old Testament. The Old Testament had something to say about what the Messiah would do, something that only God could do. In Isaiah 35, verse 5, we read, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The ears of the deaf had already been unstopped, and now right there in front of them, this blind man, his eyes were opened. And they're realizing this is the Messiah, this one who was to be from God, who would come with vengeance and the recompense of God. The Messiah is here. Their eyes were opened. Then he says, go, but don't tell anybody. After verse 26, you can draw a line in your Bible. It's, it's a dividing line. It's, it's a turning point in Jesus' ministry. You could say it's a hinge, and we're moving to a different phase. Some theologians call this the continental divide. We've come to the top, and now we're going down to the other side. Everything before this point, Jesus has been ministering to the masses, to the crowds. Along with developing his disciples, he's been doing these miracles to the crowds, to all the people, both to the Jews and to the Samaritans and Gentiles. He's been doing these miracles for all the people, and he's showing himself to the Jewish nation and to the Gentiles that he is the promised Messiah. Boom, they see it. The apostles see this. But from here on, Jesus no longer is reaching the crowds. We're going to see this. Rather, he's preparing the 12. He's training the 12 disciples, getting them ready for his suffering. He's going to say that here in just a short time in the passage. He's getting them ready for his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. And he said it repeatedly to them, preparing them for what's coming. Christian, you need to be prepared for what's coming. And then that leads to the fourth interaction. Commit to the Messiah. Commit to the Messiah. Let me paint the picture here. These, uh, he, he comes to this place called Caesarea Philippi in verse 27. Jesus went with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. It's 25 miles north of, from Galilee. It, apparently, and I'm looking forward, Lord willing, and he in, in next spring or so, to be able to see this as part of our journey in, in our trip to Israel, to see Caesarea Philippi. It's a beautiful spot. It's, they say it's one of the prettiest spots in Israel, Caesarea Philippi. It was built as a town for Caesar Augustus. He was deified, made into a god by the Romans as a lord. And they also had 14 other temples that were built here to different gods, a very pagan concept right there 
at Caesarea Philippi. One of those temples that was built was built to Baal, the god of, of, of Can- the Canaanites, this pagan god involving, the, and, and involving Greek mythology right, that all ties together. And they also had a, a god named Pan, P-A-N. Half man, half goat, playing a flute, a pan flute. Or is the pan flute this way? I can't remember. This way, okay. Goes back to this. And there's an idol monument grotto that's there, even to this day, that they feel like that was the location where Jesus had this conversation with his 12. Jesus and his disciples went to Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, uh, Elijah, others say one of the prophets. But he said to them, Who do you say that I am? Christian, who do you say that Jesus is? He's deliberately asking his disciples to place their faith in him, not in the false gods around them. Peter, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. It's not these false gods that the other people are worshiping and all their deities and all their ideas about what life makes reality. It's Christ that's their reality. And he's making a comparison, a contrast with those false gods with the true and only God, Jesus himself, in their presence. And he is the Messiah. Now, that's a big point for anyone who understands the Old Testament. These Jewish people with all their background and study of the law and all their history and all the prophets that were speaking in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all the prophets, they know these things and they know the one common thread of it all that there was a a promised anointed one, this one who would come that would do exactly what God said had to be done to rescue people from the curse and to be a savior for all mankind, the world. And they're getting the picture. They have to root out the unbelief, deal with their doubts, and get the picture that Jesus is this Messiah. And then they have to commit to him, saying, it's, it's not about me, Jesus. It's all about you. Life is all about Christ, our Lord and our God. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. Amen? Let's get that in our head. Let's come to that commitment. He asked the most important question, whom do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, as Matthew states it as well. Christ, Christos, Messiah. It's a title for one who can do this that no one else can. The word Christ, the word Messiah means to smear. It's the anointed one. It's the one that's no one else can be this but the Son of God, Psalm 2, who would die and rise again. It's the one who would bear the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 53. It's the one who will see prophesied as the anointed one 
who must be cut off. What does it take to live an effective Christian life and not just to be one in name only? Get to the place where you are willing to make a commitment that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. Follow this progression as we work through this passage. In Mark 11, Mark 8, verses 11 through 15, the leaven of the Pharisees, we have to deal with the leaven of unbelief. Mark chapter 8, verses 16 through 21, we're, we're dealing with our doubts. We're setting aside the doubts by reminding ourselves of what is actually true, what God has done. In Mark 8, verses 23 through 26, in addressing this miracle of the blind man seen clearly, we have to gain perspective to allow Christ to open our eyes to what is reality. And then we come to a point of decision. Each Christian must come to a point of decision. Like Peter, declare Christ. Have you done that? Is he your Christ, your Lord? Peter, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. That's a declaration. Normally when we hear the word declaration, we think of the declaration of independence. And that was a turning point. And that said it all. Here is a declaration, Christian, your declaration of dependence on the Christ, the Son of God. There's no other way given among men whereby we can possibly even be saved, yet he has done that for us. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 and 26, it's all a matter of timing. And I think in these disciples that understand their Old Testament history, they know the timing, they know Daniel's prophecies, they've worked the numbers, everyone's looking for this Palm Sunday that's coming up. And they realize it's about time for the Messiah, and he's here. They're talking to him. Jesus is the Messiah, the one that all of history revolves around that is the only possible answer to our sin problem who can give us life. He is the bread of life. And for Peter, the lights came on, and he was ready to make that declaration as best he could and thank God for his grace and for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in helping him turn from his failure to a commitment that lived it out even to the point of death. Christian, are you there? Are you committed to your Messiah? Jesus is the theme of the book of Mark, the theme of the Bible. Let's get that point in our heads. Let's see that he is the most important thing. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, my prayer for you is that the Holy Spirit would turn the lights on for you. He would illuminate the truth. You would realize this world is crazy, and the only answer is the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. He's the one who can make life make sense and give me hope for eternal life through what he's finished on the cross, the debt being paid in full. It's all about Jesus, your reality. There's a danger of unbelief. Deal with your doubts by looking into the Scriptures. Recall what Jesus Christ has done for you. And let God turn the lights on, only he can, and give you the conviction that Jesus, you are the Christ, our only Messiah. And in that, there's fulfillment 
and in his presence his fullness of joy. The one who took away our sin, giving us life and a reason for living now, no matter what the circumstances are, he is the Christ. Live that, commit to that, believe that. No other social cause, no other confusion of our world. It's all about Jesus and the lights come on. Yes, see clearly your Messiah, Jesus, your Savior. Let's pray. Lord, may you use your word to help the lights come on. That we would see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what life is all about. Yes, we all have various responsibilities and duties, and you've given us the privilege of living now during this time, remembering and understanding who you are and what you've done. And by faith, we declare, Jesus, you are the Christ. And Lord, from that, give us perspective about how to live this day. Lord, for anyone listening and hearing this right now, who is not a believer in Jesus Christ. Oh God, may you, through your power, draw them through to faith, to depend on you, to, to put aside their doubts, to see Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by him. I beg you, Lord, that your gospel would work. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Messiah, who is our Lord. Oh God, use your word in our hearts right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you stand as we sing together.